Hi, this is Lily, and I'm a member of the Beacon Church. Welcome to our podcast. We'd love to meet you, so come visit us on Sundays at 9.30 a.m. or 11.30 a.m. at the Viscardi Center at 201 IU Willits Road in Albertson, New York. Now, Beacon is a non-for-profit, and if you shop Amazon, you can support the work at Beacon by selecting the Beacon Church of Long Island as your supporting organization. And a small portion of every purchase will help move our work forward. Remember to shop at smile.amazon.com and select the Beacon Church of Long Island as your supporting organization. Thank you and hope to see you soon. Only when we see God is infinitely bigger and completely unlike us will we be able to approach life with unflagging courage and unquenchable passion. Sweetie, Jesus did grow up. You don't always have to call him baby. It's a bit odd and off-putting to pray to a baby. Look, I like the Christmas Jesus best and I'm saying grace. When you say grace, you can say it to grown-up Jesus or teenage Jesus or bearded Jesus or whoever you want. You know what I want? I want you to do this grace good so that God will let us win tomorrow. Your tiny Jesus, your golden fleece diapers with your tiny little fat balled-up fist pawing. He was a man. He had a beard. Look, I like the baby version the best. Do you hear me? I like to picture Jesus in a tuxedo T-shirt because it says, like, I want to be formal, but I'm here to party, too. Because I like to party, so I like my Jesus to party. I like to picture Jesus as a ninja fighting off evil samurai. I like to think of Jesus, like, with giant eagle's wings and singing lead vocals for Leonard Skinner with, like, an angel band. And I'm in the front row, and I'm hammered drunk. Hey, Cal, why don't you just shut up? Yes, ma'am. So how do you like to picture Jesus? Uh, A couple years ago, I was meeting with a young woman. She'd been coming to the church for uh, a few months, and she wanted to talk to somebody about having a relationship with Jesus. So she stopped by our offices, and we sat down, and we started this conversation. And when I have these conversations, it's my custom that I always want to open up Scripture. So we go to Romans, because I just want to make sure that she knows these aren't my ideas. This is, this is coming right from the Bible. And we work through bits of Romans together, and we talk about the gospel and what it is to follow Jesus. And we, we talk that uh, having faith in Jesus is, is actually trusting him and believing that when he says something's good, it's good. And when he, say, he says something is bad, it's bad. Even if we don't feel the same way that we submit to him, that's what it is to, to trust in somebody. And we go through Romans 1, and in Romans 1, if you're familiar, there's this list of kind of sinful behaviors and actions. And as we're about to go into it, I, I know in my head already that there's a few things on this list that she's kind of been engaging with and has been okay with. And so I kind of tread carefully as we read through this list together, and I'm trying to be as gracious as possible to just say, like, look, there are things on this list I struggle with, and like I get that, and there's moments where we fall short, and, and that's uh, totally to be expected. But at the same time, 
following Jesus means we're at least going to agree with him that he, when he says these things are, are bad, that these are bad, and we want to you know, rid them out of our lives. And, and it seemed like the conversation went really well, and we closed in prayer and went our separate ways. And a couple weeks later, I got a very nasty email <laughs> uh, accusing me of just being judgmental and harsh and accusing her of things and, and all of that. And then she said, and, and she put it in all caps for emphasis, she said, my God put me in this situation to complete me, all right? My God put me in, and then she went into the, you know, all of these things that her God would or wouldn't do, and, and it kind of, uh, it caught me off guard a little bit, and it's not the first time that I've heard somebody use a, a phrase like this, kind of saying, like, my God would do this or would do that, but this was probably one of the most overt kind of out there, where she said, my God, in quotes, all caps, my God is this way or this way, uh, and it was definitely probably the, the closest thing I've personally experienced to somebody saying, I like my Jesus in a tuxedo shirt because I want him to party because I like to party, <laughs> All right? And, and this is, uh, it, it's easy to kind of point the finger and look at somebody else and realize like, oh, how silly they are for thinking they can conjure up their own version of God. And yet, I wonder how many of us at different points in our lives, whether we said the words or not, have thought this in our minds that my God would or wouldn't do something. And where did those definitions, those images of our God come from? We're in the third week of a series that we're calling Not God Enough, and it's based on a book by the same title by this pastor, J.D. Greer. And if you've been enjoying the series or you'd like to investigate more into any of the series, I encourage you to pick up a copy of the book. It's great. Uh, but in this series, we're, we've been talking about just a, a tendency to want to reduce God, to make him smaller than he is, because a smaller God is more manageable. It's a little more convenient along the way. But at the same time, if we reduce God, he's no longer big enough to deal with the big problems of life, and he's no longer big enough to be reliable when we need him. And this week, we're going to be talking about uh, this idea of how do we envision God? When, when you think of God, what comes to mind? And where did that picture come from? You know, maybe, maybe you haven't been so crass as to, you know, read a passage of Scripture and be like, well, my God would never do that and turn away from what the Bible says. But have there been times where you've kind of been pushed away from ideas that, that you know are true, but you've kind of rejected because it doesn't feel right to you? And... This, uh, this might seem like a new phenomenon in the church. You might blame it on like, you know, the church today, it's just, it's, you know, lost its way. But this is not a new issue in the church. In fact, Voltaire, this is the 18th century philosopher, he wrote, in the beginning, God created man in his own image. And man has been trying to return the favor ever since, right? And how true this is that, that we want to kind of create God in an image that is most suitable to us right? And it, this might feel like only, you know, the extremist is doing it, and yet this is a pretty per, uh, persistent issue throughout time. And in fact, this is such a big issue that this makes it to the number two spot on God's, like, top ten list of don't do these things, right? Chris mentioned the, the first two commandments last week. The first commandment is have no other gods before me. The second commandment is don't make any images to worship. And, and a lot of times we kind of mix and match those two commandments and they kind of get meshed together and they both have to do with idolatry, but they're, they're a little different in nuance because the first commandment is a little more about worshiping the wrong God 
The second commandment is about worshiping the right God in the wrong way. Right? The first commandment is about us deciding to reject the true God and go pursue another God. But this, this second commandment, it's more about how we, we twist God. We kind of reduce him to an image that is not true of himself. Daniel Strange, he, he says it this way. He says, crucially, idolatry's scope includes not just displacements of the triune God, but also distortions. Right? The first commandment is about displacements of God. The second commandment is about distortions of God. Now, the fact that you're here in church today indicates that you're probably doing pretty well with the first commandment, right? Like the whole displacing God, not so much an issue. And I know that's not true of everyone here. Some of you guys, you're, you're kind of seeking out, you know, whether you believe in God at all. Some of you are pretty sure there's not a God, but you're just here because somebody dragged here. That's cool. We're so glad you're here. But for most of you guys, you're here because you've already decided that the triune God is the one true God, right? So commandment one, number one is not so much an issue, but commandment number two, this kind of becomes our first commandment in the church as believers to make sure that we're worshiping God in the right way, worshiping God as he truly is, because anything short of that is also idolatry, right? And sometimes I'm, I'm tempted to think that, you know, as long as somebody's like praising Jesus, does it, does it really matter? It's like they're on team Jesus. Like, let's just celebrate they're on team Jesus. But, but here's the deal. If we're worshiping God as something other than he is, for something other than what is true of him, not only is it, it meaningless and worthless, it's actually offensive. Uh, a, uh, a couple years ago, we were doing some work over at East Williston trying to create space at our East Williston campus because that was like the perpetual problem of space. I realized that some of you, you never worshipped with us on a Sunday at East Williston. Like this is all you know of Beacon Church, right? Who has who not worshipped with us at East Williston? You guys have no idea how good you have it. Like this leg room that you have right now, this is like first class leg room. Back at East Williston, it was coach. It was, it, was, it was like flying Spirit Airlines level coach, all right? And like people smell. We, we actually took the kitchen and turned it into a kid's classroom, right? We, relate, we called it the galley because we thought, oh, that's cool. We'll change it by a different name. But it was still a kitchen. We had kids sitting on like kitchen cabinets for class because uh, there was no space. And so in one of our efforts to create more space, we decided to create this little coat rack area at the entrance to Kids Quest. And really cool, up against the wall allows all these hooks. It takes a very little space, but allows for a lot of coats to be stored. And because I tend to do a lot of the stuff with the building and design stuff, people assumed that I made this coat rack. And so people started coming up to me and like, oh my goodness, Trevor, I love the coat rack. How do you do it? How do you come up with these ideas? You're so brilliant. And, you know, it's all very, very flattering. And uh, the problem is I didn't make the coat rack. No, Cheryl made the coat rack, all right? Uh, and so you know, normally I'd be like, all right, I'll take credit for it. But what they also didn't realize is I had already made a coat rack for that very space that is now folded up in the corner in the basement. It got pushed out and replaced by Cheryl's coat rack. So every time they were complimenting me on the coat rack, not only were they not complimenting me, they were, they were praising Cheryl. They were also reminding me how much better at life Cheryl is than I am, right? And so it's not just that it was meaningless, it's actually offensive. Now, in, in this particular case, it wasn't offensive. I was behind it, we needed more space, all of that. But you can kind of get this understanding that when we are 
worshiping God for something that's not true of him, we might think it's honoring to God, but it's dishonoring to him. Because in that, that same moment, we're saying, you know, what I really am worshiping is this attribute that doesn't belong to you. So we're, we're taking our, our worship away from God and putting it on something else. And in that same moment, we're criticizing God. And we're saying, I would like you better if you were this way. Which is why this second command is so important. Why it makes it so high in the list that if we're worshiping God as something other than he is, it is deeply offensive. David Clarkson, he was a British minister in the 17th century, and he wrote this, uh, kind of commenting on this very same subject 400 years ago, but it could have been written yesterday, right? He says, if you think otherwise of him than he is, think him all mercy, disregarding his justice. Think him all pity and compassion, disregarding his purity and holiness. Think of his faithfulness in performing promises, not at all regarding his truth and execution of threatenings. Think him all love, not regarding his sovereignty. That this is to set up an idol instead of God. Thinking otherwise of God than he has revealed himself is idolatry. This is a real issue that we need to wrestle with, especially in the church, right? Because we've already said the triune God is God, but how do we know that our picture of God is true? That it actually reflects God as he actually is, not just our own invention of what we want him to be. In fact, this is such a, a pressing issue, and it, we're so susceptible to it, that while God was giving Moses the Ten Commandments, all right, like the tablets were still warm from God etching them in stone, and down at the base camp, this commandment was being broken already by the Israelites, all right? And the, the story is in Exodus 32, and I, I'd love for you to open up to Exodus 32, uh, if you don't have a Bible, you can raise your hand. The ushers will grab one for you. It's page uh, 61 in those Bibles. And as you guys are getting there, what I, I want to do is I want to summarize uh, a little bit of the story so that we can go back and just hit specific spots. But Moses is up on Mount Sinai, and God is giving him the law. And while all this is happening, it's taking a lot longer than the people were expecting. And so when Moses left, he left Aaron in charge. And the people come to Aaron and they're like, we don't know what happened to Moses. This guy might have bolted. Like, we're sitting ducks here out in the, the wilderness. We need you to make us God to go before us and lead us through here. And so Aaron, he succumbs and he tells the people, grab your gold. Grab the gold earrings and everything. Bring it all to me. And he takes that gold and he throws it into a furnace and he fashions it into a calf. And he places that calf, and he places an altar before that calf, all right? And, and all this might sound like, well, isn't this, isn't this the first commandment? Isn't this worshiping an idol, worshiping a god other than God? But then Moses says something that completely flips the script, all right? He says, tomorrow we are going to have a festival to Yahweh, right? Yahweh is the personal name of God. All of a sudden we see that Aaron, he wasn't creating a different god he was trying to create an image of the one true God. This is how he envisioned God to be. And he tried to force him into this mold. And so God is, you know, talking to Moses, and he gets interrupted by all of this. And he says to Moses, you know, Moses, your people, right? I love how he says it too. He says, your people, Moses, is like a parent, like with me and Lindsay, like when Kara is like super sweet and cuddly, she's our kid. And then when Kara has like a really nasty diaper, then I want to hand her off to Lindsay. Be like, look what your daughter did. Here's your daughter. That's like, your people, Moses, are down there, and they're making a mess of everything. Because after this whole festival, 
temple uh, where they were making sacrifices, it actually turned into this like whole orgy, right? And so if your worship services end in an orgy, uh, it's a pretty good indication that your vision of God is slightly off. Uh, and so Moses goes back down and he sees all this and he's just angry and he drops the tablets and they shatter and he has to fix all of this and it was a mess and people died in the process and it was just, it was this like a huge atrocity for the nation of Israel just after this great victory coming out of Egypt. But in this story, this is kind of the first infraction of the second commandment. But in this story, we get to see some insights that I think are going to be really helpful for us to be able to identify ways that we might distort God and what we can do about that. And there's four insights that we're going to look into. And the the first uh, of these insights is the cause of distortions, being disappointment with God. If you're there in, uh, in Exodus 32, in verse 1, he says, When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. See, all of this started for the Israelites because God wasn't, wasn't performing as they expected them to. He had let them down. He had disappointed them. This was all taking too much time. And you you have to understand, like, they just came out of Egypt. It was a hostile situation. They tried to leave numerous times, and Pharaoh came back after them. Now they're just sitting ducks in the wilderness. Moses disappears, and, and their God, it seems like their God has abandoned them, and they're disappointed with their God. And it's in this moment that they start to try and and re envision God to suit their needs. And all of us are going to experience times in our lives where God lets us down, at least from our perspective, times where he's not meeting our expectations and he he disappoints us. There's going to be times where he, he doesn't give us the things that we think he should give us and he doesn't answer prayers that we think he would answer, or there's times where we experience trauma or, or loss that we just can't explain. Maybe you're in that place right now, and you feel this, that God is just not meeting your expectations, but it's in these moments that we are most susceptible to start to re- reinvent who God is to meet these situations. The second insight we glean from this passage is the process of distortions how these distortions come to be. And it's through uh, what I'm going to call accidental craftsmanship. If you can conv- continue in verse 2, it says, Aaron answered them, take off the gold earrings that your wives and your sons and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. And he took what they handed him and made it into an idol, cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool, right? So from this, you get this clear picture. This is, this is craftsmanship at work. Like this is, there's thought and there's detail involved here, all right? But then if you jump all the way down, jump all the way down to verse 24, all right? So this is Aaron explaining it, how everything went down from his perspective to Moses after Moses comes down. And Aaron says, so I told them, whoever has any gold, jewelry, take it off. And they gave me the gold and I threw it into the fire and out came this calf, right? It's like uh, on par with, uh, you know, uh, an excuse you'd get from your like seven-year-old or something. But I, I definitely believe part of this is Aaron trying to save face. Like he's just kind of making an excuse to defer some of it. But I actually think there's more to this. I think in, in a sense, Aaron is telling the truth where 
all of this happened so fast. And, you know, each step along the way wasn't thought out. He wasn't trying to produce a calf. It just kind of, all these things came together accidentally. And is this not the way that most people's view and image of God comes together on accident? For instance, if I were to go out on the street and I were to start asking Christians, just Christians out on the street, their views about God, they would probably give me a pretty detailed description of who they believe God to be. There would be some craftsmanship that goes into it. It would be a definite image that comes to mind. And then if I were to follow up and ask them, how did you come to this belief about God and who he is and what he does, all right, how many Christians do you think would respond by saying, well, what I did is I scoured the scriptures and I sought to understand and see everything God said and did in revealing himself through scriptures. And then I wanted to see how he revealed himself through Jesus. So I studied the life of Jesus and the things he did and the things he said. And I, I put all this together and I was able to reference theologians and pastors and, and seeing this full, complete picture of God, how God revealed himself in scripture. And through all of that, I was able to put together this picture of God. How many Christians do you think could give that answer for their vision of God? Could you give that answer for your vision of God? Unfortunately, I think for many people, we have an accidental theology where we hear drips and drabs. And yes, you hear stuff from us on Sundays and it depends, you know, sometimes you might only hear one side for a period of time, depending if you miss Sundays, but you, you might only get a, a narrow picture of who God is unless we're actually going into the scripture and studying it. This is why we actually have our, uh, our discipleship classes. Our whole second year of the discipleship classes is systematic theology, where all we're doing is we're scouring the scriptures to find everything they teach about different topics in relation to who God is and what he's doing in the world because we don't want an accidental theology. C.S. Lewis commenting on this very thing, he says, theology is practical, especially now. In the old days when there was less education and discussion, perhaps it was possible to get on with a, a few simple ideas about God, but it, it's not so now. Everyone reads, everyone hears things discussed. Consequently, if you do not listen to theology, that will not mean that you have no ideas about God. It will mean that you have a lot of wrong ones, bad, muddled, out-of-date ideas. For many, a great many of the ideas about God which are trotted out as novelties today are simply the ones which real theologians tried centuries ago and rejected. Do you have an accidental theology? Our hope and our prayer is that for each of you, that you don't have an accidental God who's kind of crafted just because you hear some things here and you pull some things from here, but you have a God that was sought after, a God that you, you intentionally sought after to uncover who he revealed himself to be in Scripture. Aaron, he had an accidental theology and accidentally created this image of God. And it was a very specific image, and that's what I want to look at next, the shape of our distortions, where culture meets preference. It says that it was a, a golden calf, right, they threw the gold in, out came this calf. And even though it might have happened kind of on accident, the image is not arbitrary in the slightest. The uh, Egyptian god Apis, remember that the Israelites, they're just coming out of Egypt. They spent their whole lives in Egypt. That's the only culture that they know. But in Egypt, there's this god Apis. And Apis is a bull. And Apis was the embodiment. He was like the incarnation of their creator god, Ptah. And Apis, this bull, represented the power and the provision of the king of 
Egypt, all right? So here the Israelites are. They're in the wilderness, and what they want more than anything, their preferences, what they desire God to be is present with them, right, with power and provision to lead them through the wilderness, all right? And so they take their preferences, and then they adopt the image from their culture, that they're coming out of, of this bull, and they put these things together, and all of a sudden, this is how they see their God, this blend of, of culture and preference. And culture shapes how we view everything, right? It shapes how we view family, shapes how we view education, how we view money, all of these things. Culture just touches all of these things in ways that often we're not even aware of, right? And not just like the broader culture, but our, our individual subcultures, they shape us in unique ways. Uh, Lindsay was born and raised in Phoenix, Arizona, so her family is from the southwest, my family is from the northeast. Turns out, very different cultures in those two places. And I, I got to see uh, and experience really the, the peak of the difference this year at Christmas because we did Christmas with both families about a week apart. And we get together with my family, and it's just loud. It's just always loud. And we're, like, yelling at each other. My dad, like, messed up the pizza order, and we just ripped into him, and we're, like, aggressive and mean and merciless. And, yeah, you would have thought he, like, kicked a puppy or something. We were just, like, on his case about this whole thing. And then we're at Lindsay's family, all right? And there's twice the number of people at half the volume. Uh, all right, and we're having this nice dinner. At one point, her sister, like, got up from her dinner, leaving her plate there, just got up for a minute, and Lindsay sat down in her seat for just a minute, all right, and her sister came back, and her sister was like, oh, no, 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 keep my seat, and she's like, oh, here's your food, and she's like, no, you could keep the plate of food, too. I'm like, you're willing to give up your seat and your plate of food so as not to cause a disturbance? Like, what is going on here, right? Because culture and family and our upbringing and our education, all of these things, they affect how we, we interact and how they view things. And we'd be naive to think that it doesn't shape the way that we view God, right? Culture, it is pervasive in this way. And it pervaded how the Israelites conceived God and it helped them shape this, this golden calf. And here's the irony, right? The Israelites, they wanted a God who was going to be present with them with power and provision to lead them through the wilderness. And if you are familiar with the story of Exodus, you know that as you keep reading, God shows up and he is present with them with power and provision as he leads them through the wilderness. So the very thing that they wanted, God was going to provide, right? But our distortions of God, what they tend to do is they take certain attributes of God and they elevate them to the neglect of other attributes, and so it's not necessarily saying something that's wrong about God. It's just an incomplete picture. You know, you think about the liberal God, the God who is all love, right? And he's all compassion, and he's forgiving, and he's accepting, right? And he's patient and kind, this, this loving God, right? That is all true about God. None of those things are untrue. But it's an incomplete picture by itself. You think of the conservative God who is righteous and just and he is uncompromising in his ways and he rewards those who deserve to be rewarded and he punishes those who deserve to be punished and all those things are true. But it's not the full picture of who God is and how he functions in the world. You think of the televangelist who wants to say God is generous and God wants to heal all of your sicknesses and he wants to bless his kids with all sorts of blessings and those things are also true but it's not the full picture. And our, our tendency is to take certain attributes of God that kind of fit with our culture and our preferences and elevate them above 
other attributes to the exclusion of the other attributes, and it actually distorts who God is, and it changes how we understand him and what we expect of him. And J.D. Greer, in his book, he actually gives us a litmus test to know if, you're, uh, if you have a distorted God. He asks this question, how often does your God contradict, confuse, or offend you? Think about it. How often does your God contradict, confuse, or offend you? Because if he doesn't, chances are you're not worshiping God, right? Think about it. Think of the person who's closest to you in this world, the person that, you know, you guys get along the best, right? Do you guys agree about everything? Are there times where you're contradicting one another or confusing one another or offending one another? Of course, right? And if we can't, if we can't have a relationship with another person on the planet who agrees with us all the time, what makes us think that God would agree with us all the time, right? Wouldn't that be like awfully convenient if God supposedly like agreed with everything that I believe? It just so happens, right? He likes everything that I like. Uh, that's a good indication that we aren't worshiping God. J.D. Greer in his book, he says, if our God never contradicts us and always likes what we like and hates what we hate, he's not the real God. All we've done is deify our preferences and call the personification of those things God. Is your vision of God based on uh, this combination of your preferences and, and the broader culture? Or are you willing to be contradicted and, and feel uncomfortable at times with the, the truth of who God is? The last thing we see in this passage is the solution to distortions. And we see that in Moses. This whole time while this is going on, God says to Moses, look, they've lost it. And God proposes this idea to Moses. He says, hey, Moses, why don't I just wipe them out? I'll just get rid of them. How about I start fresh with you? I'm going to make you into a great nation. All right. And Moses turns around. And he says uh, in verse 11, it says, but Moses sought the favor of the Lord as God. Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountain and to wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger, relent, and don't bring disaster on your people. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self, I will make your descendants as numerous as stars in the sky, and I will give your descendants all this land, I promise them and it will be their inheritance forever. God kind of like offers up this opportunity for Moses to just like be free of the Israelites and their nonsense, and God could do everything to just give Moses the, the best possible life. But Moses has this zeal for God's supremacy, and he refuses to bite. And we know that this isn't like God really making an offer to Moses, and we, we know this. You could tell that this is really just to test Moses, because if Think about it. If, if God was to offer up this promise to Moses to make him into a great nation, he would have to break his promise to Abraham first, right? Which means, and Moses would know it. So how could Moses have any confidence that God would keep his promise to him when he just broke his promise to Abraham, right? This is Moses kind of being put on the spot and, and tested. And Moses says, no, no, no. All right, yes, it would be more convenient if you did all that. Yes, it would be a lot easier for me. Yes, I might want that to happen in some ways, but how could I ever trust you? 
How could I ever rely on you to be the God who I need you to be when things go south? If you're a God who's not going to be faithful to who you are. So when the Israelites abandon God and create this distorted image, Moses, he clings to the supremacy of God and who he has defined himself to be. And he says, I will worship no other. I will not, I will not bow to another God or a distorted image of God because this is the only God who can deliver me. And there's times where for us, it's going to be tempting to want to change God to suit our needs and suit our desires. And it might be more convenient. It might be easier. But, but if we change who he is, then he's no longer reliable. Tim Keller, he puts it this way. He says, if my heart doesn't trust God's word when it tells me things I don't want to hear, then my heart won't accept it when it tells me things I desperately do want to hear. We need a zeal for who God is, an unshaking zeal. And I actually want to, uh, I think Lindsay's here with Kara. I want to I wanna bring up Kara real quick. And I, I want to close with this story. J.D. Greer tells a story in his book. And in this story, uh, it, it's a family, and it's a family he knows, goes to the pool. And as they're leaving that day, uh, they realize that their two-year-old is missing. And they run back to the pool, and to their, their horror, they find their two-year-old son at the bottom of the pool. By the way, this is Kara. <laughs> yeah, she's uh, so cool. Uh, <laughs> the good news is they were able to, to rescue their son. They brought him back, and they were able to revive him. And they're in the hospital and while they're in the hospital, they noticed that he had all these purple dots all over his face. And so they asked the doctor what happened. And, and the doctor said, well, uh, apparently when your son was at the bottom of the pool and he was drowning, he was, he was crying out so desperately, probably for you to come save him, but he was crying out so desperately, so aggressively, that it actually caused the capillaries in his face to burst because he was, he was just crying out with such distress. And 2,000 years ago, Jesus sat in a garden and he cried to his father and he said, Father, if, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. But if not, your will be done. And he cried that three times. And you know, you read that in a passage and, and you say, well, it's a nice prayer that Jesus was offering up. But then you read that he, was, he felt sorrowful unto death and that the capillaries in his face burst and his, his, his sweat became like blood. And with the same distress of a two-year-old drowning in a pool, crying out to his parents, the son of God who walked on water and commanded storms to shut up and who was able to call out Lazarus from the grave, this son of God sat in distress looking at what lay before him. And it wasn't, wasn't the pain of the cross, the physical pain. It was the spiritual pain of, of the wrath of God being poured out on sin that he took for us. And he looked at that and he cried out with that same distress of a two-year-old drowning, saying, my God, my God, let, let this cup pass from me. And his father was silent. There's a lot of things and a lot of times where I look at God and I say, I, I wish you would do it differently. <laughs> There's a lot of times where I say, I wouldn't do it the way you do it. And I wish God would act like me. But this is one time where I assure you, you do not want God to act like me. Because if it was Kara staring up to me and asking, could this cup pass for me? I assure you, you would be dead in your sins. <laughs> I love you guys. I do. I, I do. But I could not do what God did. 
And there are times where it is tempting to say, I would do it differently and try to reshape God into an image that fits me and my desires. But, but I assure you, there is no better God than the true God. There is no better option. And you could say, my God doesn't do this and my God would never do that. You could say whatever you want. You could define God however you want. But the son of God was on a cross and he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And his father forsook him so that you could be redeemed. I, I wouldn't do that. <laughs> I, I hope and pray that you will have a zeal for God as he actually is. Because as confusing and sometimes even offensive or uncomfortable as this God may be, there is no better God than him. Let me pray for us. Father, it is just unbelievable the grace that you've shown us at the cross. And God, you are sovereign and we don't fully understand you and we don't get it all the time and we're confused and we're uncomfortable. But God, I pray that more and more we will come to understand just how good you are, far better than any God we could shape on our own. And may we have a zeal for your unchanging supremacy and live for your glory and delight humbly submitting to who you are. We love you and we trust you. In Jesus' name, amen.